my boast is in Jesus. And I was reminded of our, our theme for this month, Sola Gratia, Grace Alone. And the reality is, I, this phrase went through my mind that I've heard and others have, have even, even talked about. Uh, true Christianity finds itself not in do better, but in finished, done, accomplished. That Christ has finished all that is needed for sinners to stand before him with joy and righteousness. It is his righteousness, his work, his finished mediatorial accomplishments that our boast is. So we are going to jump back into Genesis. If we were to just start where we left off four months ago, we would be jumping into Genesis 27, right in the middle of a couple of quarreling twin boys. And so I thought it'd probably best not to do that this morning, instead to go back to the first chapter of Genesis and review the book of Genesis, to work our way back through that, to understand what we're looking at, what this is all about, and what really not only the point of this very first book in the Bible is about, but really what the point of the entirety of the Bible is about. You've heard the saying before, I am sure, don't miss the forest because of the trees. And what that essentially means is sometimes we get so focused on a little detail and a little fact over here that we miss that there's this grand forest of grace in the Scripture, that there is a common thread, a scarlet thread, as it were, that weaves its way all through the Bible, and there is one main purpose in God's revelation to us. And Genesis begins that, and it really expounds most of that for us, and everything else we read through the rest of this really big and dense book is a, a breaking off of, or you could say the advancement of this first book, what we learn here, an explanation of it. So there's no particular scripture we're going to read, but if you want to turn in your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1, because that's where we're going to begin, and I'll be putting, looking at some scriptures along the way. We believe as a church that this book, the Bible, is God's infallible, inerrant voice, fully true and wholly sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. This remarkable book, the Bible, was written in the span of 2,000 years, um, as God's Spirit moved in farmers and prophets and shepherds and kings and priests and fishermen to write in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek God's own divine thoughts. And that's amazing. This book is history. This book is poetry. This book is law. This book is gospel, good news. And it is God's precept from the minds of God through the minds of men. So we, as we did this morning, we pray and we sing its truths, not our own. We read it, we study, we teach its contents, we love and obey its precepts, and through it alone, we seek to, as the tagline of our assembly is, know God, love God, serve God. That's our point. Last year, um, almost exactly... In sermon count-wise, a year, this is the 52nd sermon through the book of Genesis. Last year, we launched an in-depth study in this first book of the Bible, Genesis, first of five books called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In the original Hebrew, uh, this not really five books, it's five chapters or five sections of one big scroll. The Hebrew people understood these five books, which is a lot of material, 
as being one idea, one scroll, one point in all of it. And that point is simply this, that God himself makes the way for people to enjoy his holy presence forever. I'll say that again in case you didn't quite grasp it. God himself makes the way for people to enjoy his holy presence forever. In the enjoyment of God's presence, we are exalted and encouraged and he is glorified. This enjoyment of the presence of God is something that we all struggle to have. And the book of Genesis tells us why that is. But the word presence matters. Think logically with me for a moment. The greatest treasure that any of us could have would have to be some treasure that has inestimable worth and value to it. If God were to give us the greatest treasure, the only way he could do that is if he gave us himself. Any gift he would give would not be the greatest because he is the greatest being. And that is why God created humanity to give himself to us. That's what it is, the greatest treasure. It is not that God is some sort of maniacal psychopath who's like, here, enjoy me. I'm great. Glorify me. It's for our best good that we would possess and enjoy the greatest thing we ever could. It is actually for us and for our good that God calls us to enjoy him and glorify him. That's the greatest thing we could ever have. This theme of the first five books carries throughout the whole of Scripture as the hat tip to the old, pure, uh, old English poet John Milton This really what we learn in the Bible, starting in Genesis, is paradise. That is God who is paradise. Paradise gained and paradise lost. And it would add to that and regained in Christ alone. So, this refresher, if you want to go back and look at some of the other sermons through the book of Genesis, they are on our website, and you can look through those. We're going to Look through the authorship, the structure, the flow of the book of Genesis um, in looking actually then from that, the implications for our lives and the rest of the Bible. And then tomorrow, next week, sorry, not tomorrow, I'm, I'm really ready to be back. <laughs> so next week, we will jump into Genesis 27. So let's just go back. Um, the book of Genesis or the Torah, all five books, the author, God. The human element that God used, Moses, the famous prophet. Moses was this human agent used to write these five books in ancient Hebrew. A common Hebrew arrangement is called a polystrophy, which you might be saying, what in the world is that? That's a good question. You probably weren't asking. Um, We also use the word chiasm. And I had a slide I had for this, but I don't have it up for some reason. I I missed it. Basically, the first and last idea are parallel ideas, and the second and fourth, and 
you get the idea. Like the first and last, they're each parallel ideas working and pointing like an arrow toward the middle, the main point. We arrange things sometimes with three points or with A, B, and C when we're trying to arrange some sort of document or report or paper or something like that. And for those in school, um, the way the Hebrews often, not all the time, did this was they arranged it in a polystrophy or chiasm or chiasmus. And it kind of moves its way, kind of pointing toward the main idea. What's interesting is there are five books in these first that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they function in this chiasmus. They function in this way. Genesis, the first book, Deuteronomy, the last book, they're parallel ideas. In Genesis, we see that God creates a people and a place for his presence. We see him make covenants with those people. In Deuteronomy, we see that the people who he has made, he calls them to make a covenant with him. Different kind of covenant, but a covenant nonetheless. In Exodus, the second book of the Bible, we see how these people whom God made were pretty sinful find themselves enslaved and without hope and God's presence far from them. And God is redeeming them and bringing them back to, as he says, come back so that you may serve me or enjoy me or worship me in my presence. And he delivers them from Egypt. The presence of God is found with the people. Redemption. What will these redeemed people, these saved people, do with the presence of God? Parallel to that is the book of Numbers. They will wander, and they'll do their dead-level best to do whatever the opposite of what God says is. For those of you who are saying, well, that's a pretty harsh view of humanity, well, you haven't had children then. This is the reality of life, right? So it's the first book, the last book of the Pentateuch, the second book, the fourth book, it's all pointing toward this fifth book, this book of Leviticus, which ironically is the least read book in the Bible, I think. And people get like, they say it's boring, it's hard, but it's actually the point of the, all, the first five and really the point setting up the point for all of the scripture. And what is this book of Leviticus all about? It is about how God take, can take those rebellious people that he has redeemed and make a way for them to actually enjoy his presence without shame and guilt and fear. So it's the way for humans to come back to God or to enjoy God once again, even in their rebellious state. And he does, though, he sets this up with this image, this picture. The middle of the middle is Leviticus 16. And the Hebrew writing, the way they do it, they kind of keep centering things to kind of point us there. And there's this chapter, Leviticus 16, which is all about this thing called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on this Day of Atonement, an animal is said to be an innocent, perfect, pure, without any sort of fault of his own, is meant to be sacrificed in the place of the sinful people. And it's setting a picture up that says the way to get back to enjoy God's presence, one is something that God will do, not you. He'll create the means. You can't do more, you can't be more religious, can't pay a tithe or go to church, and all that stuff to get back to God. But he will make a payment to bring you back. And it will be through an innocent sacrifice in your place who that innocent sacrifice will die so that you don't have to die. And by the death of that sacrifice, we go free 
to worship him. That's what the Jewish Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is all about. And it's the point of the Pentateuch. Paradise gained, paradise lost, redemption, wandering, okay, restraint, and here's a covenant to keep you from dying too soon. But in the middle of it all, God makes a way that we might be able to have a mediated relationship with him forever through the innocent dying on behalf of the guilty. That's the point of Leviticus. It's really hard at this point for me not to just jump over and let's talk about Hebrews, where we find out who this lamb, this little lamb was talking about. It's the point of the Pentateuch and really the point of the entire Bible. A high priest with an innocent lamb will go to God on sinner's behalf. However, our concern is not today Leviticus, it is Genesis, the beginning of this. So let's jump into Genesis. 50 chapters, as I said, written by Moses, covers about 2,000 years of human history. That's a lot. Focusing on the center, geographical center of the world in ancient Mesopotamia. From this place, humanity begins and scatters all over the globe. Moses divides the history of Genesis into two parts. Be creative. We'll call it part A and part B. In part A, it's actually only a short period of writing. A lot of history, a little bit of writing. Because part A only covers 11 chapters, 11 sections in Genesis. Part B, on the other hand, covers four times that much, four, around 40 chapters. So what's ironic about it, in those first 11 chapters in part A, we have about about 1,500 years of human history. And in part B, the 40 chapters, we have about 500 years of human history. It's very clear that the point then in Genesis is not all of human history. It's centering on something. It's, it, there's a reason that Moses slows down and takes some time in this 500 years. We'll get to that in a minute. Let's just walk through part A briefly. Uh, we'll skip those, but look at part A. How does the Bible, so how does history start? How does the history of humanity start? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Profound and simple. Implication in this text that is proved throughout the rest of Scripture. God has no beginning. If in the beginning... God exists, which is what Genesis 1-1 says, then God exists outside of a beginning. He exists outside of time. He's not compelled by beginnings like we are. Thus, he's not compelled by endings like we are. But he is the God outside of and above time. Furthermore, the text goes on to say, in the beginning, God created Right away then, we see the authority 
that the Scripture gives to God and calls us to reconcile, uh, to reconcile in our minds, our little attempts at personal autonomy and authority must be um, sort of mediated by this fact that we are created beings and we are created by an uncreated one. We are created by a self-existent, eternal, infallible, in inerrant being. In the beginning, God. You see that in the very first words of Holy Scripture. And that sets up everything else we should know and believe about God and ourselves. In the beginning, God created. The text says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth was a very Jewish way of just describing the universe. Everything. Now, if God alone exists in the beginning and he created everything, then he could not have been created because then he would be one of the everything that he created and that doesn't work. In fact, we see from this very beginning text that him creating everything not only means he stands with authority outside of time and outside of creation, we see the absolute power that he must have then created everything. Echnilo, out of nothing, God created everything. The sheer weight of that should give us pause. Because that is the first relationship we have in humanity, is one of a creator-created relationship. We were made. Now, if God is God in any real sense of the word, then he has to have created with purpose, right? Randomness and pettiness would not do justice to the concept of God. He didn't just create because he was lonely, as some might say, because to be God, you can't be lonely. You have to be self-sufficient. So why did he create everything? Well, we're not going to obviously do an exposition of Genesis 1. We're trying to get the whole book. So let me just kind of sum it up this way. God created a place, the universe, and then he created people to fill that place. So Genesis 1.27 continues and says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, it's interesting to me that most of the struggles that our world has with, who, with identity issues, whether it's male-female identity issues, whether it's self, um, uh, self-worth, whether it's value, whether it's racism, all these things really can be solved with Genesis 1.27. God created Man or mankind in his image, we are image bearers of God. That graves gives us great value, every one of us, regardless of where we come from and what we're like. Gives us divine value. Not that we are divine, we have the value as those who represent God. And the fact that it says in the text that he created male and female indicates there are two genders in which he chose to reveal his image bearing of God and they are equal in value before God and important. So there's a lot we could say and we did in sermons we went through this. But the point is that God created humanity, created everything in the world and he created humanity, male and female, for the purpose of us to be, as it were, kings and queens in this universe. Now, kings and queens below him, and I use that word not in a political sense, but more in an uh, uh, anthropological sense. We are the, the rulers of the universe. We subdue the world. The world doesn't subdue us. We're kings and queens. We're meant to mirror 
God, image bearer. We're meant to mirror God in this world. Therefore, we are made to be good and moral and upright and love and goodness and grace. We're made to have these things. We're made to image God in the world. If you've spent much time in this world, even if you may be on your way here to drive this morning, or you've in a relationship with someone, you have learned and they have learned that we, for some reason, don't really do a very good job of imaging God in this world. Moses is going to explain that to us. So what happens, or the way the the Hebrews arranged it, Moses arranged it, was with this Hebrew word toledot. Hebrew word just simply means the generations, or the record, or the history. Or I like this phrase, I think it fits the text, the translation best, um, what became of? So Genesis chapter 4, or sorry, 2 verse 4, 2, 4, we have the first time this word is used, toledot. It says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So it says, okay, so this is the what became of. <coughs> what became of the universe? What became of the world that God created. We were, it was created good. We were kings and queens. We're filling this place. We're going to enjoy and subdue it and, and build. And we're in this garden and there's beautiful things. What became of it all? Now, nine more times, Moses will use that word toledot. And I have it arranged if you want to look at the slide. And each one of these is another division. And it, five of them are in the first part A of Genesis and five of them are in part B. And it's just a very clear arrangement. Moses was, if nothing in his writing, very organized and easy to follow. And so we say, what became of the heavens and the earth? And then he's going to explain in 2, 4 through 4. And what became of this Adam and his family? And what became of Noah and his family? What became of the sons of Noah, which is really the rest of the humanity? And what became of particular son of Noah, Shem? And then we'll move on. Well, there was a guy named Terah who seems to be important. What became of him and his prime son, and then this guy named Ishmael and Isaac and Esau, what became of all these things? And it's really tracing the history of a particular family or particular group of people that comes from the all, from the, from the whole. And this is the way Genesis is arranged. We're not going to walk through it in this section this way. Um, really, I want to more walk through it thematically than how it's arranged here. But the first question is, what became of the heavens and the earth? God had created humanity as his royal representatives, kings and queens, meant to produce, lead, tend the rest of the world with beauty and morality, and he placed them near him. That's key. He placed them near him, his presence in the garden, fully provided for. Ours through them was merely to amplify what God had already made, to turn the garden into a city, to make it beautiful as it was. <coughs> but we have an individual enter this garden that wasn't accounted for. We don't know the origins. We do know that this individual was an angel, was another part of God's creation that we don't know how and when they were created. Angels, real beings, spiritual, without bodies. Well, this angel came into the garden, and he had previously, or in this time, he had decided he didn't want to be a created being. He wanted to be the creator himself. He's called the serpent. He's called the dragon. Today, we call him Satan or the devil. Sometimes the scripture calls him Lucifer 
many names for him. He is the embodiment of evil because evil opposes God's authority, God's creation. He enters in and he tells the first man and woman who were made to flourish in God's presence, he tells them, God has been evil to you. He has been cruel to you. His word cannot be trusted. You need to go your own way. He never calls them to follow him. He calls them to follow their own hearts. Go your way. Do what you really want to do, which is be gods yourself. The first man and woman respond to that with, you know, he's got a point. It would be nice to have all the authority and control ourselves, to live as creators rather than created. And so they choose the lie, because it was a lie, and they choose death in the process. God meets with them in their sin, and they disobeyed God. One, one rule he gave them, one, one work, one covenant of works, one work he gave them, they, they, they failed. They refused it. And we, in, in them, as their representatives, in fact, they were all of humanity, so we represented in and by them, um, they rebelled against the Creator. They rebelled against love and goodness. And what we call sin entered the world. That's what became of the heavens and the earth that God created. And now the question moves from how can people enjoy God's presence forever? How can sinful, rebellious people enjoy God's presence now? You see, there's a, there's a problem God is good, perfect, and love, holiness, and righteousness, and mercy, and grace. And so if sinful people or sinful beings are enjoying him, or well, one they can't enjoy, evil can't enjoy good, but if then we were in his presence as such, the shame and the guilt would incinerate us in that holy presence. So now the question shifts in the scripture in the third chapter of Genesis, three chapters into the history of humanity, shifts from how can just anyone enjoy his presence to how can sinful anyone's enjoy his presence? How can people who oppose God ever enjoy him like he intended? To prove a point that we are sinful like Adam and Eve, the scripture records for us there are two their firstborn and secondborn in the story of their life. And the firstborn, Cain, murders the secondborn out of jealousy and spite. The proverbial apple did not fall very far from the tree, nor does it today. What became then of Adam if his sons killed? One son was a murderer and the other one was murdered. Well, God gave him other children. Um, what became of Adam... He had another son and more sons and more children and they had children and humanity still flourished and humanity still grew, but they grew cursed. They grew in sin. They grew dying. They were born and then died and then they died and then they died. But you see, back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God had come to the sinners and he came to them with righteous judgments, you can't hate me and enjoy me. You're going to die 
because that's what's right and just because you've sinned against life itself. You've sinned against the source of life. But in the midst of him bringing a judgment on humanity, a righteous judgment, he also provides a beautiful promise. And he says to Eve, or to Satan, the serpent, the deceiver, and he's talking to Eve, the woman, and he says, I will put enmity or angst between you, Satan, and the woman, between the embodiment of evil and the creation of God, God's people. And between your seed, or the people that will be evil like you, Satan, and her seed, singular, between a particular being, a person that will come from her, he, that seed, who we know to be Christ, shall bruise your Satan's head. In other words, he is going to ultimately put an end to evil and its source in Satan himself. But you, Satan, you will bruise his heel. In other words, you'll strike at humanity once again. You'll strike at this one that's going to come from the woman who's going to bring an end to evil. You'll strike at him, and the best you'll be able to do is biting his heel. And the best he will do is crushing your head. So in the judgments of God, there is a promise that one is coming to bring an end to evil and sin. In so doing, sinful people will be able to enjoy God's presence again. So in Genesis 3.15, we have the beginning of the rest of the story of the Bible. So what became of Adam? Well, he had family, they died, but there was a particular son or a child eventually was born many, many years later. His name was Noah. And what's the world like when this guy Noah is born into the world? Well, it's not a very good place. Unrestrained evil looks just like you would expect unrestrained evil to look like. The scripture tells us in Genesis uh, chapter 6 that every thought of the hearts of man was only evil always. People had followed the lie to its fullest end. In fact, so bad that God in his sovereign and good yet hard um, determinations says, I'm going to slow down the depravity. I'm going to restrain man, and this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to purge the earth from them. I'm going to leave Noah and his family so that we can have, as it were, Adam 2.0, a fresh start in this world. Not because this is going to save humanity. It's not going to be the seed. It's not, not yet what's going to save humanity. It's going to slow it down until the time that this seed or this offspring, this descendant of the woman can come and bring an end to it all, to all evil. And so that's what we know of as the great flood. The Bible talks about that destroys humanity and everything in it. <coughs> you don't know how difficult it is for me not to stop and talk about all these things from the Scripture, but there's 51 sermons you can go back and listen to that do that. Because we've got to move on. Because we come to chapter 11, and Moses changes gears and moves on to part B. Noah had sons. 
and they had children. And they had, just like we saw with Adam and Eve, they had children, and then, then they kind of grow up, but they all die. And what we learned throughout all that is, well, that can't be the descendant promise because he died. You can't have a dead offspring, a dead seed that's going to actually stop evil. He couldn't even stop death. Think, well, maybe Noah's the guy. Maybe he's the one. Guess what happened to Noah? He, he ended his life a bit in shame and misery, and he wasn't the one. And he had three sons. Maybe one of them is one of them. Well, there was one, the two of them, a little bit rough. The third one, he died too. So he can't be the descendant. And this keeps going on and on. But we have humanity springing now up in Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization, as historians tell us, springing up, and it comes from this Adam 2.0, or this Noah. And there was a son of a son of a son, you get the idea, of a guy, and he comes down to this guy named Terah. And Tira particularly had a son who really is important. His name is Abram. And this is where part B begins in Genesis, this guy named Abram. Now, I'm sure everyone, perhaps by his better known name, Abraham, but everyone knows who Abram is and his wife Sarai. Everyone know that, who became known as Sarah, Abraham and Sarah. Now, what makes them so special and why essentially the rest of Genesis, the 40 remaining chapters in Genesis. We talk about human history, 1,500 years of history in the first part of Genesis, and we get a lot of stuff there. And then the 40 remaining chapters in Genesis, and really the rest of the Old Testament even, and into the New Testament, focuses on this guy and his wife and their family. And the question that immediately comes to my mind is, what's so special about them? that God would focus history on them. And the answer to that is not very much. They're actually, they're a childless, older couple in the Middle East, pagan idol worshipers who live over in probably modern-day Iraq. And history centers on them? Redemptive history, the history of eternal life centers on them? Why? Not because of who they are, but because of God who graciously is seeking and desiring to make a way for his people to enjoy his presence. And so we have the message shifting in the second half of Genesis. Who will be the seed then? We've spent 1,500 years finding out who it's not. Who will be the seed? Because we really would like him to come sometime soon and put an end to all this evil and reconcile and fix the brokenness in our world and the suffering and the destruction and, and put an end to all this dying stuff. Who will the seed be? And this is what he does in the second part of Genesis. He says, it's not him. It's not Abraham. Don't, no, it's not him. But I promise you, Abraham, and then for us, the promise comes through. It's going to come through his family. You now know who it's going to come through. That's what makes Abram so special, is that God makes a covenant with him, telling him that through his human family, there'll be a place for God's people forever, land. There'll be a large number of people, a great nation, who will be his precious, redeemed people. And most importantly, the blessing of God will be upon 
this family, because through this family, every family of the earth will experience the blessing of the righting of wrong, of the destruction of sin, of reconciliation to God. The descendants coming through Abraham and Sarah. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, in your progeny, in your seed, all the families will experience the blessing. And what is the greatest blessing that anyone can experience? The greatest treasure. What is the greatest treasure? The presence of God with joy and delight, without guilt or shame. It's coming this way. Here's the problem. They're an old childless couple, remember? They don't have any descendants. And so they're like, great, this means that my wife's going to get pregnant soon. And then year after year after year goes by and she doesn't. And she gets to the place where she is postmenopausal and she has said, I cannot have children, it's impossible. And God says, oh, of course, that's just the time I want to come and bring you a descendant when it's impossible. So that the power and the glory would not be in man, but in God alone, as, the, as they said in the text, the God of the impossible. So Sarah has a baby in her old age. They name him Laughter. It's a pretty good name. Isaac is what we call him by, but Hebrew word laughter. Because how can you not laugh? How can you not? Will this be the seed? Well, no. He's a pretty good boy. He grows into a good man. But he too sins and he dies. Well, what about Abram? He was the main guy, right? He's the big, he's the, he's the big dog in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, most of Genesis, the story, Chronicles of Abraham, are telling us not what he did so great, but reminding us of what he failed in. Now, it tells us amazing things about Abraham, was a figure to follow, called the father of faith for reason, because when God said this, these things to him, he believed it. And in fact, the text says that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness in Genesis 15, 6. And then that is a lesson for us in Romans 4, 2 through 3. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was accounted him for righteousness. We learn in Abraham how we can have righteousness, faith in God's word. That's it. No work of our own. But Abraham believed, and that's commendable. And there were several times when Abraham didn't believe. And what we learn through the Chronicles of Abraham and then through Isaac, who nearly mirrored his dad's life, is that invading armies, sinful relatives, family infighting, mighty pharaohs, famines and diseases, even fear and doubt in the patriarch Abraham himself and in Isaac could not undo a divine promise. And so Abraham's not the seed. Isaac's not the seed. But, but he has two boys. Isaac and his wife have two boys. 
And this is where we are jumping in next week, by the way, with the two boys. I'm impressed that I did like Genesis 1 through 27 that quickly this morning. But this is where we're, and and I got to go beyond this. So the rest of this is spoiler alert. Um, They have two boys. And if the question is at the beginning, well, would one of these be the promised seed? There is a resounding no. Because what we're going to actually discover, church, as we journey through the rest of Genesis, is that things get weird from here on out. Okay? I mean, I don't mean weird in the sense of like God does weird things, I mean people get weirder. And kind of disturbing. And the voice of God diminishes through the rest of Genesis. He talked a lot to Abraham, talked to Noah, talk, and he doesn't seem to speak very much in the rest of Genesis. Instead, what we have now recording is what they did, how they responded. And you know, you end up with Jacob and Esau fighting from the womb for pre- predominance, fighting from, in, from the beginning, battling in family. Ever have family conflict? Um, the patriarchs understand because there is massive family conflict in, the fa- in, in this, this patriarchal family. And what you find is that Esau, he cares nothing for divine promises. And Jacob, he likes the divine promise, but only what it can get him financially. And we'll find Jacob is nearly 100 years old before he ever gives any credibility to the God of his father. Messed up, has lots of problems, has 12 sons, has more children than this, but have 12 primary sons, known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And then we read the story of those 12 boys. And that is even more disturbing in Genesis than the stuff with Jacob. Makes Jacob ashamed. And yet God comes time and time and time again and says... I will keep my promises. A descendant will come, and he will bring you back to me. Well, that's Genesis, and I don't have time to go any further, but that's okay because we're going to go into that. But I want to just conclude this this sermon today with just a, a brief thought. This story of Genesis becomes the story of the Bible, and the most important story for each one of us. Because this story of Genesis dovetails and leans into what we know as the good news or the gospel, mostly revealed in the New Testament. And in the gospel, Romans chapter 3, 23, we learn this important truth that I think all of us, if we are honest with ourselves, would believe and agree with, All have sinned and fall short of God's glory, God's presence. None of us deserve his presence. Are we better than Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? No. We all proved that we are just like our ancestors. We are inherently selfish, sinful, arrogant, and full of wickedness. Of course, some of us are worse than others, but as the Apostle Paul rightly noted, I am the worst sinner I know. We all thus fall short of God's glory. That is, we cannot and will not enjoy God's presence unless something supernatural happens to us because I just don't seem to want it. 
In fact, we need something outside of us. It can't come from this line because it just seems to not work. Thousands of years have proved that. Countless wars and politicians and infighting, violence and jealousies have proved to us this is true over human history. And we cannot enjoy God's presence as we are. But the scripture will also tell us, the Bible tells us that 2,000 years ago from our time, through this promised family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the seed promised to Adam and Eve did appear. And then it all makes sense. Because the only way it would be for us is if it's one of us. But the only way it could benefit us if he's not one of us. Not tainted with the sin and the wickedness and the nature to hate. And so God himself says, I will become one of them. And in his divine, sovereign holiness, God himself, the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, he comes and he joins himself with a human body. He becomes flesh. Not through natural procreation, but rather through miracle. And he, in this human embodied flesh, he enters the womb of a young woman. And he is born in the natural way. And it looks like it's, it's divinity veiled because he looks like any other human. But he is a being that is unlike anyone in all of human history because he is 100% humanity. And he is 100% divinity. He is the true image bearer of God because he is God himself. He is the righteousness outside of us and it says in the Bible that he becomes sin for us. He takes on humanity. And so he not only provides the way for us to be enjoy God's presence, he is God's presence in humanity. He is the paradise gained. He is the garden of Eden. He is the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This child, mysteriously, both God and man, 200%, completely obeys perfected law. He never sins. He never transgresses. He didn't do that to qualify himself. He did that to qualify us. In other words, he obeys where we disobey. He's righteous where we are unrighteous. And through his life, he wins our righteousness for us. And then in his death, which we celebrated this morning, he dies the death every sinner deserves. For us, in our place, a substitute like the Lamb of Leviticus. And the God-man is perfect and yet he dies as imperfect. He's sinless, and yet he bears our sin and our guilt. Every sin, every evil deed, every thought you've had that is against God and against another, Jesus Christ is his name, and he took that on himself. He took your payment. He took your judgment. He even took the shame that you feel and the guilt that you have, and he bore it. That is a weight we cannot even imagine because I cannot even bear my own weight of guilt. 
I cannot imagine the weight, the guilt of the world of human history. And as the man bearing sin, he was judged divinely. And that's why he died. His death is precious to us, not because we want him to die, because of what it gains for us, what it means for us. It means, as Jesus himself cried on the cross, to tell us die. It is finished. Everything in Genesis is now complete. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace alone, you have been saved. So therefore, the gospel is not what must I do. The gospel is what has God done. So whosoever shall call on the name of that Lord, the God-man, Jesus Christ, shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin, saved from death, saved from judgment, saved from the fiery presence of God himself and brought into a place of rest and joy in God. Because God so loved the world, loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, the divine presence, except through church, not through religion, not through works, through resting in Jesus Christ. I urge you, rest in Christ.